If it is your first time here, I just want to give you a warm welcome to Fellowship Raleigh. My name is Jonathan Reyes. I serve here as the associate pastor. Uh, and today we are going to continue our study through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Um, We've been in Acts since the beginning of October, and we've just been walking through verse by verse all that the Holy Spirit is doing in and through uh, the disciples through this book. And today we're going to find ourselves in chapter 4. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the passage. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. We have it on the screen as well. We'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll get started. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came about to 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, giving among men by which we must be saved. Father, while well, we come before you just um, thanking you for the time spent with friends and family, uh, I thank you for holidays because they just often remind us of how thankful we should be. Uh, you have told us that you are the giver of every good gift. So, Father, we thank you for the many blessings we have. We thank you, Lord, that uh, although it's raining today, that rain is a good thing, that the earth needs the rain. So we thank you for it, God. We thank you for the time that we get to gather here as your people to sing to you and to hear from you from your word. So I just pray in this moment that you would just fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that I may be enabled, equipped, and empowered to communicate the truth of your word with conviction, with compassion, and with clarity. I pray, Father, for everyone who is here, that you would open up every mind and heart to receive from your word, that you would send forth your word and that you would accomplish all that you wanted to do. We pray that your word would land as a seed on fertile ground and cause it to germinate so that it may bear fruit. I pray, Father, that you would use your word to make us uncomfortable, that you would use your word to not only inspire us, but to challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to, uh, to take our faith seriously, Lord. Um, and I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2015, there was a horrific video that circulated on the, on the internet detailing the brutal execution of 21 Christians in Libya by an Islamic terrorist group. 
The video, which I do not recommend watching, showed these ISIS soldiers marching these brave Christian martyrs to the seashore. Then, with their swords in their hands, the ISIS uh, captors made uh, the Christians kneel down and gave them a chance to recant and say, if you deny Jesus, we will not kill you. However, remaining true to their convictions, the Christian men would not recant. In response, their captors systematically beheaded all 21 of our brothers as they quietly mouthed, Jesus, help me. Their crime? Simply, they were followers of Jesus Christ. And so it is and has been for our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world throughout history. Christians have been opposed, arrested, persecuted, and muzzled. And this section in the book of Acts that we are highlighting today highlights the first situation in which opposition to the followers of Jesus Christ was heightened. So as we consider the history of opposition to the Christian faith and we approach this text, the, the big idea, the main thing I want us to see in this passage is that responding to opposition requires gospel-rooted and spirit-empowered boldness. Gospel-rooted and spirit-empowered boldness. To catch you up to speed where we have been so far, we see in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them uh, about the kingdom, giving them uh, you know, 20 years of seminary in 40 days, downloading this information to them, and then he ascended back to heaven, reminding them that not many days from now that you are going to be clothed with power from on high, that you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses throughout the world. And, you know, fast forward, we see at Pentecost that that power did come, that they were all filled with the Spirit, that they spoke in other languages as the Spirit enabled them, gave them ability, gave them utterance, um, which was a fulfillment of prophecy you know, which then set the stage for them, uh, the apostles, to interpret the events to, and share the gospel with those in attendance. And as a result of Peter's preaching, 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And now those new believers shared genuine fellowship around God's word. Their lives were transformed by the gospel, and as a result, they wanted to do life together. Soon after, and this is what we discussed last week, Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 p.m. And on their way, they saw a lame man asking them for money. But being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, Peter uh, directed his gaze at him because, you know, Matt said that, you know, we have in our human nature as we walk through the city of Raleigh and we're driving and when we see the homeless people asking for money, our knee-jerk reaction is to not point our attention to them, but Peter was intentional in saying, you know, I'm not going to ignore you. Look at me and says, listen, I don't have money. I don't have silver. I don't have gold. But what I do give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And at that moment, God healed this man in front of many people, which set the stage for Peter and John to share the gospel with those in attendance. And now this gospel preaching invited opposition and persecution to come their way. So as we dive into this text, we're going to see that responding to opposition requires gospel-rooted and spirit-empowered boldness. So number one, opposition will come. Opposition will come. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. 
It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching in Jesus uh, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came about to 5,000. So, you know, this happens immediately after uh, Peter and John healed this man, and they preached to everyone on Solomon's colonnade. So, as they are preaching, you can imagine the ruckus that they're causing, which then the, the authorities, the, the, the priests, the uh, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, come in and are angered because they're teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We need to remember that Jesus himself told his disciples to anticipate this. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And more on that part later. So who were these Jewish authorities? The text says, it says that they were the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests were just uh, the people on duty working the temple. The captain of the temple guard was the, the highest ranking priest next to the high priest. He was second in command. He was the one who was authorized by the Roman government to keep things in check in the temple. And the Sadducees, this was a Jewish sect. In, in those days, there were, there were three different type of uh, sects or denominations, if you will. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, the Essenes. And the Sadducees, in particular, what, what Luke wants to do is uh, indicate both their theological and their political convictions by highlighting saying it was the Sadducees. Theologically, the, the Sadducees, they were the theological liberals of their day. When I say liberal, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about these were the people who denied the supernatural. They denied the reality of miracles. They denied the reality of angels and demons, and they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied that everything after the book of everything after Deuteronomy, the first five books of Moses, they denied all of that. They only believed in the first five books of Moses, hence why it says that they were greatly annoyed that they were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ because they didn't believe in that. Now, politically, the, the Sadducees, they were in bed with Rome. They, they had an alliance with Rome. You might think of yourself like, what's the big deal of un understanding the political aspects uh, of their political convictions? Well, for the, for the Sadducees, they, they had economic interest. Uh, their concern was to make peace with the Romans. They wanted to preserve the status quo and thus protect their own power. In return, Rome would uh, give the Sadducees influence and power. They feared that talk of a Messiah, let alone one that rose from the dead, would rival Caesar, uh, would ruin a good financial and a political arrangement for them. They were mad that these men were not only preaching something they disagreed with, but also something that can cause a potential political uprising. Because the idea of a resurrection and a messianic figure would come to their, uh, came to their eyes of, uh, to liberate Israel from Rome. The Sadducees believed they had a good thing going with Rome, and they didn't want the apostles to mess that up. 
So what did they do? Verse 3 says that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. Remember that they went to the hour of prayer at 3 p.m. The Jewish day starts at 6 p.m., so this is already the end of the day. We don't know how much time Peter and John spent preaching and persuading the people to repent. It could have taken two hours, and by the time they came there, it probably was already like 5 o'clock. So all they said is like, we'll arrest you, and you're going to spend the night here in the paddy wagon, and we're going to uh, talk to you in the morning. But one of the things that Luke wants to highlight is that in verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. Luke wants to remind us that opposition to the gospel does not hinder the gospel. That the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest God's word. Luke here begins to establish a pattern that happens to be repeated in the book of Acts and is that persecution cannot stop kingdom expansion, but often goes hand in hand with the growth of the church. The bottom line is that we should expect, that we should anticipate opposition, but that opposition is also good for the church. So when I think about opposition for being a Christian in the context of America, you know, you can... You can look to Hollywood, you can look to the media, you can look to sports, but one individual that comes to mind to me as a sports fan is Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson was um, formerly um, you know, a great point guard. He's number three in the uh, assists all time, but he was, he's most known notably in recent history as a former head coach of the Golden State Warriors. You know, he's the one who laid the foundation for this championship dynasty. Now, I do want to preface this, that what I'm about to share is speculation. It is my observation. It is my opinion. I, I am not the Holy Spirit. I cannot assume people's motives. But Mark Jackson, if you know anything about the Golden State Warriors, they just won the NBA championship last year. And they have won four titles since 2015. Mark Jackson was hired as the coach of the Golden State Warriors in 2012 after years of being terrible. When he came in, you know, he's the one who says, all right, let's, hide, let's draft. Uh, they already have Steph Curry. Let's, let's draft Klay Thompson. Let's draft Draymond Green. Let's trade for Andre Iguodala. Let's trade David Lee for Andrew Bogan. And everybody's questioning this. And then as they, you know, as he takes over, first year, they only win 23 games. Granted, he's a first-year head coach. Second year, they double. They win 46 games. They go to the playoffs. Second year, they win 53 games. They go into the second round of the playoffs. And then after that season, he gets fired. You wonder, like, wait a minute. This guy is actually doing a great job. He's improving the team. They're on the up and up. The next year, their replacement head coach, Steve Kerr, takes them to the NBA Finals, and they win. And Mark Jackson has yet to have an NBA head coaching position since 2014. It's been eight years. And you ask yourself, wait a minute, this is a guy who built the foundation of a championship team and is, is a proven good coach. Why is it that not even the Knicks would give him a job? Why wouldn't he get a job? Like, he's, he proved as a good, great head coach. What is it? Well, my suspicion is because of his Christian convictions. The Golden State Warriors are based out of San Francisco. And uh, Mark Jackson has been very outspoken of sin, 
very outspoken of his Christian convictions. And you can imagine that the, the owners were not too happy when he says, you know, that he believes homosexual activity to be a sin. You know, wait a minute, you are the head coach of our organization in this city that we pride ourselves in this lifestyle. You can't be talking that way. He gets fired. But what, it, what seems suspicious is that he can't get a job as a head coach anymore. But the thing about Mark Jackson is that he's not the cookie-cutter Hollywood Christian that just says nice things, that doesn't want to offend people. He's a Christian Christian. Like, he is out, there's a picture, he's, you know, he makes millions of dollars standing on the street corner of Hollywood preaching the gospel, urging lost people to come to Jesus. And it is because of th things like, this was on TMZ, highlighting that why Mark Jackson cannot be given a platform because he has views that offend people. So it's my suspicion that the reason why he has received opposition is because of his Christian faith. Now, a great question to ask ourselves is if persecution against Christians come to our country, how would you respond? A better way of saying it is, I've heard it, I heard it say this way. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence for the prosecution to convict you? Think about that. Is there enough evidence in your life to prosecute you and convict you for being a Christian? Peter and John, they shared the gospel, ended up in jail. That's not likely to happen to believers here in America, but there are still risks when you're trying to win others to Christ. You might be misunderstood. You might be rejected. You may be ridiculed. You may be ostracized. We, sure, we might be willing to spend a night in jail if we know the result of our efforts in, in sharing the gospel win 5,000 people. But would you be willing to go to jail for one soul? Whatever the risk, we need to realize that whatever is done for God is never wasted. That the reward will certainly be greater. So we need to anticipate opposition. We need to realize opposition will come and we cannot be surprised by it. Jesus told uh, his disciples that, but to respond well. So you need gospel-rooted, spirit-empowered boldness. So number two, we're going to look in the, uh, in here next, continuing the story, Peter's spirit-empowered response in verses 5 through 12. It says that the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So the next day, the entire council comes to address the situation. We see that this council is made up of the rulers, elders, scribes, and with members of the high priestly family. This council, they, they're often known as the Sanhedrin. They acted as the ruling government of Israel at the time. They handled all of the local problems and the religious questions, but they had to work under Rome's supervision. For crimes specifically that carried, that carried capital punishment, they needed Rome's approval. So this council was made up of 70 members, plus the current high priest who presided over the group. The Sadducees helped the majority ruling group, and you can imagine of these 70 people, these were the, the wealthy, the elite, 
the intellectual, powerful men of Jerusalem. They were the who's who of the most powerful and, and prominent religious leaders of Israel. And some of the members might sound familiar if you're familiar with the Gospels. Ananias is identified as the high priest, and Caiaphas, uh, and according to Jewish tradition, would have been the official high priest. You're like, wait a minute, what do you mean official? Well, when Rome took over, they decided who would be the high priest. So they had terms. Uh, but in Jewish thought, the high priest was, a, was an office for life. So in their eyes, Caiaphas needs to be there because he's the real authority. Ananias, you're cool, but we still respect Caiaphas. Now, the reason why they may sound familiar is that these were the same high priests that were present at the trial of Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. These men gathered to interrogate Peter and John. These are the men who, because of who they are, they're scribes, they're the Pharisees, they're the religious leader. They know the Old Testament in and out. They know the details. They're the ones who are completely immersed in religious thought. They, they can argue theology for hours on end. The only problem is that they were spiritually lost. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, had been walking among them and they missed him. Even worse, they authorized to kill him. And now they're blindly trying to silence the messengers of Jesus Christ. Here, what we see is a demonstration that truth, about, uh, truth of knowing about God is not enough. We must know him in a personal way. Not until we encounter God through the person of Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness and, and surrender our lives to them, all of our religious acts count as nothing. Now look back at verse 7. It says, When they had Peter and John set in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? This form of questioning um, recalls, it's the same line of questioning they did with Jesus about two months before. When, G when they had arrested Jesus, they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And now, at one level, they knew the answer. You know, they, they arrested them because they were proclaiming in Jesus the re resurrection of the dead, and they wanted to interrogate them. But the reason why they're asking is because they wanted an admission of guilt. They wanted the apostles to go out and say, yes, it's because of Jesus' name, so they can charge them with blasphemy and then bring them to Rome and say, hey, can you kill these guys? Because our law says that stoning of death is what uh, blasphemy comes with. Very similar to what Jesus did when they asked Jesus, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus told them that he is the promised Messiah in their face, and that's why they crucified him. So when Peter, who just, you know, went from being a coward in front of a child, denying Jesus, how does he respond now? He responds with gospel-rooted, spirit-empowered boldness. You, you, can, you can imagine that Peter standing there when they're asking him, by what power, by what name? They're probably just standing there, arrested, and it's the same people that killed Jesus. You can imagine, there's like, oh, snap. They're wondering, are we going to be crucified too? This scene looks eerily familiar. Like, I heard about this. So how does Peter respond? Look at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus that the stone is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For Peter, this is redemption. This is a second chance. You can imagine Peter was like, man, like last time I was in this situation, I was a coward. I denied Jesus. Even when this little girl asked me that if I've been with Jesus, I said, nope, I don't know the man. And then the rooster crowed three times. And then he was like, oh, snap, Jesus was right. Now he, he has a shot at redemption. And he is, you know, saying, you know what? I got a chance to redeem myself. And as Jesus promised, in the face of persecution, Peter is aided in his speech by the Holy Spirit to the authorities. Remember, Jesus said that when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers, don't worry about how you should defend yourself, that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words to say. Thus, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks with courage and with boldness. In the Greek, when it says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, it is written in the verb tense that it indicates that it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit filled Peter. It's as if Peter was there, frightened, scared for his life, and then the Holy Spirit zapped him with courage and with boldness and says, brother, this is what you need to say. And in that moment, Peter responds by sharing why they are there in the first place. Verse 8 and 9 says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In Jesus' name. The Sanhedrin wanted to know about the name. Peter pointed them to the healing and that the source of the healing was in Jesus. The rulers were worried that of the political dangers of the name of the apostles were preaching. They were worried that this is going to cause a political upheaval, that they're going to revolt against Rome, and it was going to disrupt their money. But Peter shows them that their healing is connected to Jesus. Peter, like before in Acts 3, when the people are asking, like, how did you do this? He turns their attention to Jesus. And Peter goes straight to the gospel, but this time he speaks truth to power. He's not afraid of them. Look at verses 10 and 12. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you, before you well. Uh, if, if I'm Peter, the only thing going through my mind is, if this is how I'm about to go out, I'm going out swinging. I'm telling it all. They, if my, they killed my Lord two weeks ago. They're about to kill me. I'm just going to tell it all. And he tells the Sanhedrin, they killed Jesus, but that God raised him to the from the dead. And to prove that God raised Jesus from the dead, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the healing of the lame man. Then the Holy Spirit tells Peter to apply, to quote Psalm 118, verse 22, and apply it to the Sanhedrin. He made it clear to the council that they were the builders that rejected God's stone, Jesus, the Son of God. The image of the stone is not new to these guys. These are people who knew the Old Testament. 
and the Jews stumbled over the rock, Jesus, and rejected him, just as Psalm 118.22 predicted. In other words, Jesus is the key figure in God's plan for redemption of Israel and the whole of his creation. Now, to, 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 to understand Psalm 118.22 in its context, the way they would have interpreted it, uh, the stone in their mind was not the messianic figure. The stone was either Israel's king or Israel themselves, and the builders that rejected the stone was the nations. So in their mind, Israel was the instrument chosen for God to accomplish his purpose. But Jesus is the true Israel who really came to bring redemption and to offer a plan of restoration. So, and anywhere else you look into the New Testament, anytime you hear this quote that the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, they always apply the stone to Jesus. And Peter went on to explain that Jesus is not only the stone, but that he is the Savior. Look at verse 12. It says that there is salvation in no one else, and that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter saw that the healing of the beggar was a picture of spiritual healing that comes in salvation. That situation probably reminded Peter of a situation when he was with Jesus, when Jesus first called him. In Luke, and not in Luke, in Mark chapter 2, the, the disciples are new. They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. They're operating by faith. They think he's the Messiah. They're, they're with him in Capernaum. Jesus is teaching and preaching, and now Jesus is at this house, and it's packed. And a group of friends bring a paralyzed man through the roof, and, and Jesus sees them and says, he sees the faith of their friends, and then he tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, which caused an upheaval with the Pharisees because they responded like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, buddy. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, says to them, uh, so that you may know that the Son of Man, term of deity, has authority to forgive sins. Let me show you. Get up and walk. Take up your mat. And then that man was healed. So Peter remembers this and said, wait a minute. Last time Jesus flexed his, his, his muscles, it was with a healing. Now, now this time, he heals this lame man and says he connects it to salvation. The reason for that is because the, the English language doesn't do justice here. The word translated as healed in verse 9 is the very same word that's translated as salvation in verse 12. So is, there is no healing aside from Jesus. There is no salvation in Jesus. The word salvation is not just applied spiritually, and it's applied holistically. There is healing in Jesus' name, and then there is salvation in Jesus' name. But on top of that, Peter answers their question. He tells them by what authority he did this. He says he told them that it was in Jesus' name. But much more than that, that Jesus is the one who has the name above all names. Now, if you understand Jewish culture, you can understand how offensive and scandalous this must be. Because when you read the Old Testament and you read every time the word LORD is in all caps, it's really the word Yahweh, God's covenant name right there. But the Jewish people respected God's name so much and they didn't want to blaspheme his name 
They said, wherever we see the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, we're just going to refer to it as Hashem. And Hashem is just, just means the name. They didn't want to utter his name. They just said, hey, the name, the name. They had this idea that the name carried weight. And Peter says, listen, Hashem, that name that you fear, it's Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. Isaiah said that their salva salvation is only in Yahweh. And Peter is saying that Yahweh, that is Jesus, that only Jesus provides salvation and hence why they, they wanted to arrest them. They wanted to kill them. And that news demands a response, that healing, wholeness, and salvation can only be experienced by accepting and receiving the reality that Jesus is the author of life, that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, that Jesus indeed was, that he was risen from the dead, and that news demands a response. We're going to see their response next week when Matt gets back, but as we think about application here, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you think you're a Christian because you, you prayed a prayer in the past to receive Christ, but you have not lived in light of that profession, the way that you respond is by listening to what Peter said when he told the people who were listening in uh, chapter 3. He says, now, uh, 3.18, Repent, therefore, and turn back from your sins, that, that your sins may be blotted out, that time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of the holy prophets. The only way to respond is by repenting. Repenting means, in Hebrew thought, to turn around, to turn from your sin and to turn toward God, to change the way you think about sin and to turn toward Jesus and to receive Jesus, to trust in him for your salvation. Because following Jesus is not about fire insurance. It's not about praying a prayer because you're afraid of going to hell. It's about entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because your sin has provided a gap a God-sized gap between you and God. And the only way to close that gap is by trusting in what Jesus did. Because when Jesus came, Jesus lived the life that you and I cannot live and he died the death that you and I deserved. Jesus was the one who was brutally beaten so bad that they couldn't even recognize him and killed for your sin. He's the one who took the punishment for sin on his body because God loves you and wants to restore that broken relationship. And there is no other way to have a genuine relationship with God if it's not through Jesus Christ. Now, you might react negatively and claim that salvation in Christ alone is narrow-minded, exclusive, and arrogantly. And that's common. That's what we hear. But two facts are worth remembering. It isn't the church that decided that Jesus is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who said it, not us. Number two, the phrase, and no one else, Peter, uh, people would be better served to focus just in the wonderful prophets, promise that there is salvation. God in his justice could have said, you know what? Humanity has rebelled against me, and in my justice, they can spend eternity separated from me in hell. 
but because I love them and I want them to enter in a relationship with me, I am going to offer a way through my son, Jesus Christ, to enter into a relationship with me. The fact that there is a way is good news, but the way is narrow. For the Christian, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, one thing we keep mentioning uh, in the book of Acts that Acts, the genre of the book of Acts is a narrative, which means that everything written is describing events that are taking place, which means that not everything that is being described are things that can be emulated or will be emulated. They're not all commands that need to be uh, reciprocated. However, that does not mean that you still cannot learn and apply things that are happening. So as we look at this text and we look at how Peter responded to opposition, let's look at three things that we can learn from and apply to ourselves. Number one, Peter de uh, demonstrated respect for his opponents. When Peter was arrested, when Peter and John was arrested, he addressed them with respect. Look at, look at how he sa it says, rulers and elders and leaders of Israel. Right away, he, he, he's at... He's not going in like, all you rebellious sinners, God is coming for you. No, 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 no. He respects those God has placed in authority. He demonstrates respect. We should learn from that. <clears throat> we can learn to respect those in authority over us, even when they oppose our faith. Number two, Peter used irony. The irony is that they were arrested for healing someone and attributing that healing to Jesus. This is why Peter says in his first letter later, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You don't have to go around looking for a fight in the culture. You just point to the good deeds that you're doing. Let, let the goodness that God is doing in and through you defend you itself. And number three, even though it's not mentioned explicitly in our text, as we take the context into um, consideration, number three, Peter took prayer seriously. What we saw here is in the beginning of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple at what time? At the hour of prayer. They took prayer seriously. And there is a connection between prayer and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me put it to you this way. Because we're in flu season, right? And, and I've observed this in this time of sickness, right? There's always a bug going around. Many times we treat prayer like vitamins and supplements. We wait till we get sick. Then we take the vitamin C and the zinc and the elderberry, uh, thinking that now that, we, that when we're sick, that we need our body to, to fight it. But the purpose of the, of the vitamin C and the zinc and the elderberry and all this immune-boosting uh, vitamins is so that you can put it in your system before you get sick, so that your body is strengthened, so that when sickness comes, your body is prepared to respond to the, to the virus. And the same goes with prayer. When you're consistently rooted in prayer, you'll be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When you're consistently rooted in prayer, you'll be strengthened to face all of the difficulties that the devil throws at you. I mean that you're, you're going to, in those moments when you're rooted in prayer, you're just going to have this unique sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's direction, to the Holy Spirit's voice, that you're going to notice that there's times that the Holy Spirit tells you to shh, 
that you don't have to defend yourself, that the Holy Spirit would come in. Like most of us, we live in a digital age, and there are many times when somebody writes something on Facebook or Instagram that we don't agree with, and we're ready to lash out on them in the comment section, and the Holy Spirit says, shh, delete it. Don't respond. The Holy Spirit would convict you right then and there, and, and you will say, you know what? Thank you, Holy Spirit, because I was, gonna get, I was actually going to do more harm to the name of Jesus than winning this person to my culture argument. The Holy Spirit would give you wisdom and tact, the same wisdom and tact that he gave Peter when you're being opposed for being a Christian. And then he will give you the, the right way to share the gospel with the people who need to hear it. He'll help you phrase it in a way that it actually hits home. So as we anticipate opposition, one thing we need to remember is that we should not look for it. We shouldn't be going out looking for a fight. This is specifically popular in our day because there's, there's Christians, people who bear the name of Christ, and they say, we should, we, Christ never commanded us to be nice. He says to be kind, but kindness and niceness are not the same thing. And they're like, we should go out and take culture back by the sword. But that's not what Peter tells us. That's not what Peter tells us in 1 Peter. That's not what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. That's not what Peter shows us when he gets in front of opposition actually being arrested for being a Christian. You need spirit empowerment, knowing that we shouldn't go out trying to offend people purposely, that we shouldn't go out looking for a fight, but knowing that our values that are rooted in the gospel is going to invite opposition. It's going to offend people. The fact that you take your faith seriously is going to cause some friends and family to not like you. You're not going to be invited to the family function. You may not even be invited to come back home for Thanksgiving because simply you have chosen to bear the name of Jesus Christ. There are brothers and sisters right now on state's campus that are battling. Like I have talks with Justin. There's this one individual who Jesus has been coming to him in dreams. And he's like, but if I accept Jesus... My parents are not going to pay for my scholarship anymore because they're, they're Muslim. They're going, my inheritance, gone. And that's, that's what they have to, we don't deal with that. But we need Holy Spirit empowerment to make such a decision to say, you know what? I am willing to be ostracized from my family. I'm willing to be fired from my job. I'm willing to be put in jail. I'm willing to die knowing that the gospel is going to call to invite opposition. And that when the opposition comes, we need to be rooted in the gospel and we need to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. And I'm also convinced that because we're in America, there's a lot of people, even here in North Carolina, here in Raleigh, that they, they profess Christ. They come to church. Some of you may even be here right now. But the moment Christianity becomes illegal, you're going to deny Jesus. Because Christianity has always been a thing that didn't invite problems. But in the moment that your life is put at stake, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to die for Jesus? Am I willing to be like the martyrs who were beheaded on the shores of Libya? Am I willing to be thrown in prison for my allegiance to Jesus Christ? The only way that you're going to survive opposition or even survive persecution is by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would give you the courage and the boldness to surrender yourself in that way. And being sensitive to the Holy Spirit only can be cultivated through intimacy. That means treating 
prayer and time in the Word like a slow cooker and not like a microwave. Enjoying time in His presence so that you abide in Him. And through that, you'll realize that you'll respond to opposition through the Spirit's empowerment that comes by being rooted in the gospel. Let's pray.